This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. So Leipzig is very, very important. We find at Leipzig, in his debate with Eck, Luther affirmed that the power of the keys had not been given exclusively to the Pope, but rather to the church at large. You will recall that according to Roman Catholic medieval theology, the power of the keys had been given to the Pope and to, and to, and to the successors of Peter. Matthew 16:18 is the, uh, the passage on this rock. I will build my church. Speaking of, of uh, well, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. Matthew sixteen eighteen, and they had interpreted that to mean that Peter and his successors had the power to loose and to bind. Uh, so Luther now is starting to raise some serious questions about the Pope. This is no minor kind of issue. This is serious business for a monk to say that the power of the keys belongs to the church as a whole rather than in one office. Secondly, Luther says that to believe in the preeminence of the Roman church was not necessary to be saved. To belief in the preeminence of the Roman church was not necessary to salvation. There's a long history here. Uh, in the early church, and some of you may recall this, is that there were, for, for a number of centuries, a great deal of tug-of-war tug between various key cities. Constantinople, uh, Alexandria, uh, who felt that they had preeminence. And over the course of time, the Roman church, because of its associate with, association with Peter and Paul, uh, emerged as the primary uh, bishopric. Uh, and Luther is simply saying that, to, that, that, that it's not necessary to be saved to believe that Rome is at the top of this heap. So, again, very controversial kind of thing to say in public in 1519. Then, he also affirmed in his debate with Eck, that even after one has participated in the sacraments, that sin continues in the Christian. Even after, you know, when you get absolution, you're supposed to be completely forgiven and cleansed. And Luther says, no. The sacraments don't quite work that way. Sin still continues in a person who has just participated in the sacraments. Even after you've confessed 
and you've had contrition and you have provided satisfaction for your temporal sins, still sin is a problem, even immediately thereafter. Now, here you see he's starting to, to attack the sacramental system. He went at the Pope. He went at Rome. And now he's going at the sacramental system. He's chipping away. And all of these things uh, are starting to move from the moral realm into the doctrinal, biblical realm. He's starting to become revolutionary. 95 Theses was not revolutionary. Leipzig is beginning to be revolutionary. But the kicker, the big kicker at Leipzig was this fourth thing. And it's one of the most famous points of Leipzig. Eck sort of trapped Luther and pushed him to his logical conclusion. Luther seems to have had a little reticence to, to come clean here. But Eck, being the expert debater that he was, pressed and pressed Luther until Luther finally admitted that popes and councils can and have made mistakes. Luther said that popes and councils can and have erred. Luther had never publicly stated anything like this before. And one gets the sense that he didn't plan to at Leipzig. But Eck pushed him and goaded him. Made him mad. And so Luther says, yeah, that's right. Popes have made mistakes. Uh, who won the debate? Well, we must appreciate that... What, what, how do you judge the winner of a debate like that? And back in those days... Uh, the winner was usually judged in terms of who knew the church fathers the best. The Middle Ages would depended a lot on commentators of common knowing the church fathers. That was a major criteria. And if that's the criteria, uh, and it probably was considered that by most people who saw this debate, then that means that Eck probably won the debate. But Luther, as far as he was concerned, had won. Handily, He didn't have a low opinion of himself. He felt that he knew Scripture better than Eck. And so he felt that he had uh, won. But win or lose is not so much the issue. The issue here that is uh, interesting for us is the fact that Luther is pushed to say very revolutionary kinds of things things that he had not hitherto said publicly. Uh, and you, you, you get this feeling that in 1519 at Leipzig, Luther is beginning to realize that his thinking is taking him in a different direction, a more radical direction. Well, we, we know, for example, that, uh, that Luther had read uh, Marsilius of Padua, a famous late medieval political philosopher who challenged the absolute authority of the Pope. 
Uh, you find that he also read William of Ockham, who did much the same thing. Uh, so Luther has a bit of a tradition. I mean, he was he was trained up in the general uh, teaching of someone like Ockham, and we know he read Marsilio of Padua. So uh, he did have acquaintance with those more radical notion, those more radical perspectives. Uh, he, I don't know. If, I don't think he'd be considered quite a conciliarist because of what he said here. Uh, the conciliarist is someone who says that a council has authority over a pope, that, you, that, a, that a, a group meeting of cardinals and the leaders of the church possess a higher authority than the pope. That was a conciliar movement in the 14th and 15th century. It eventually petered out in the, in the 15th century. Uh, but their the, the writings were still around, and there were still some folk who would have preferred conciliarism. But Luther is, is even more radical than that. He's saying that neither that, that even councils can make mistakes, not just popes. So this is uh, he's, he doesn't really fit real nicely into a conciliar category. He's, he's something a little more radical, I think. Was this like uh, disputation? In your opinion, before or after his his by faith. yeah his evangelical breakthrough, as they call right, it. Right, okay. Well, it, you know, it's you're asking me to speculate. We're starting to see, as I say, uh, this is a time of intense study for Luther, and somewhere in this time frame, and this is is one manifestation that he's thinking differently. He's beginning to think differently. And it's taking him in a direction where he's cutting himself off from the church. And I, the feeling I get about Leipzig is Luther is not quite ready to say the things that he says. And it's only because Eck pushes him and makes him a little bit angry so that he does come out and say these things, what he, what, things he really believes, but was reticent to come out and say them. Uh, Absolutely. That, that's what I'm saying. I think he's still trying to figure out what, what all of this means. And again, that's why I say I, I, I don't want us to think there was a sudden conversion you know, one day. Wham! I suspect that that comment that he made in 1545, looking back on something that happened 20, 25 years earlier, and he speaks of having been a sudden kind of thing, I suspect that that time has dulled his, his judgment there a little bit. Uh, it, the suddenness may have come at the end of a process. And that's what he's referring to is the end of that process rather than, the, rather than recognizing that there was something of a period of time when he's wrestling with and trying to figure out. I mean, he does say in that same quote, he's, day and night, I, I struggled with this idea of the righteousness of God. Uh, so I, I think that, that that is a clear indication. There's a period of time where he's struggling, and I don't know if you've had this experience, but you've come up with ideas. Uh, for me and a number of people that I've known, I remember when I discovered the doctrines of grace. And if you haven't been brought up like that, it seems kind of radical, a little bit, a little bit extreme. Mm -hmm. And you're hesitant. You, you say, I see the logic of it, and I, I can see... Uh, biblical justification for this view, but, but you're sort of hesitant to come out and say it for a while. Right. And only after a period of time do you feel more confident in doing that. Uh, I suspect 
there are certain parallels here with Luther. Yes? Was Hofstadt as um, revolutionary in what he had to say as Luther? In some ways, he was probably more revolutionary. Yeah. Uh, Karlstadt later breaks with Luther. And, uh, in fact, when, when Luther is uh, in the Wartburg Castle, uh, Karlstadt and others are uh, really starting to do radical things in, in Wittenberg. And Luther thinks they're, they're going too far. And later, the two of them break. And are Luther is more God's man of the hour, not this charging knife leading the... Yeah, I mean, I, I think events swept him along. And as he is being swept along, he realizes that this is right. And he tries to... It's, he, he's riding a wild horse, and he's trying to give it some guidance. Uh, there are extreme folks, and he's trying to reel those people back, and there are people who are not moving fast enough, and he's trying to bring them along too. It's a, it's, he's doing an extraordinary thing, a, a balancing act <coughs> of sorts. Um, it, it, I, I don't think we can appreciate the uh, the pressure upon Luther to bring all these people together. I mean, he's trying to to get the support of of the princes, particularly Frederick the Wise and the people and the church. He's doing a lot of things. A man of enormous energy. Uh, extraordinary. Michael. Well, yeah, first part I was talking about Charles his way back uh, looking at God's providence and all that political and military stuff that's going on. Yeah. <laughs> Normally, you said that Charles Good was someone like Luther that would have just this little monk just to have it. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking, well, dear Luther went up and nailed the 95 pieces, and because he was so, uh, his attention was diverted, that Charles V stabbed. Well, the 95 Theses would not have, have created a situation that warranted the emperor to get involved. That, well, that's now what I've seen. Right. The way you're explaining right. it. So uh, it's more right. these types of things, the disputation that... At Leipzig in particular. Yeah. That's when... That, right. That's right. Okay. And I'm going to ask you to get to my next point. Uh, Maximilian, the old emperor, died in 1519. <coughs> thus requiring the seven electors of Germany to then elect a new emperor. Uh, what's interesting is to look at the candidates for just a moment. Now, the, the one candidate who won was Charles V. And he had a sort of hereditary claim on the emperorship. It was Maximilian, the emperor who had died, was his grandfather. Uh, and I think I've mentioned to you he was probably the most powerful man in the world at this time. Uh, he was the king of Spain, the king of Netherlands, Burgundy and France, Naples, Sicily, and all of the American holdings. Because, remember, it was Spain who sent Columbus all of that in 1492? Well, so he's a very powerful man. He had lots of money, and he bribed better than some of the others. So Charles I was the leading candidate, and he, in fact, won. But the other candidate, Charles V, I'm sorry, Charles V, Maximilian was his grandfather, the Holy Roman Emperor who died. Francis I, I've already mentioned this to you, desperately wanted to become the emperor, 
And again, his main concern was being surrounded by this powerful person, Spain on his west, uh, uh, Burgundy on his right, worried about Germany also. If, he took, if, if uh, Charles V got Germany, that'd be surrounded on east and west. And then the Netherlands above uh, France. So he was concerned, and he spent the next 25 or 30 years <laughs> trying to destroy Charles V. I'll mention this in passing. Henry VIII was also one of the candidates for those folk who wanted neither Charles V, the Habsburg, uh, having all this power, nor wanting the uh, Francis I of France, also a powerful figure, those who didn't want either of those two figures to become the emperor, Henry VIII tended to be their candidate. But the most important candidate of all was Frederick the Wise of Saxony, Luther's prince. And he happened to be the papal candidate. The papacy wanted Frederick the Wise to become the next Holy Roman Emperor. Now, you talk about providence. Uh, this was an extraordinary set of circumstances because the papacy is trying to encourage Frederick the Wise, trying to support him, all of which means, in plain language, that Frederick the Wise had some leverage on the papacy. Now, 1519, Luther's becoming well-known. At Leipzig, it's, word has gotten around that he's starting to challenge, make some revolutionary kinds of statements about the Pope and the papacy. Uh, and Frederick the Wise knew that sooner or later, matters were going to come to a head. Uh, and so, uh, the circumstances were such that the papacy, rather than go after one of Frederick's subjects, they deemed this was a time to, to, to lay off. Don't make a big deal out of this monk. He'll burn himself out or somebody will take care of him. But where our first concern is, 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 is encouraging uh, Frederick the Wise and doing what you can to, to court him. So that he'll be, and hopefully if he, if he becomes the Holy Roman Emperor, that's to their advantage. So their priority was Frederick. And that distracted them from immediately going after Luther for all of his rebellious kinds of things. Clarification. What exactly was Frederick's relationship to Luther? <coughs> he was his prince uh, in Saxony. Frederick the Wise of Saxony. And... I, I think I've said this to you before, but Germany at that time was not a, a, a single entity. There were 300 separate uh, little uh, dominions within what we now call Germany. And each had its own duke or prince or whatever that, that basically ruled that. And then on top of all of that, the Holy Roman Emperor was the titular kind of head over all of those various 300 dominions in Germany. Now, Frederick the Wise was one of the, one of the most powerful of those 300 uh, princes under the Holy Roman Emperor. 
Question. How did the Holy Roman Emperor, how was he elected? Who elected him? Well, there were seven electors, one of whom, incidentally, was uh, Frederick the Wise. There were, I think, three secular electors and four religious. They were cardinals, usually, or archbishops. And uh, as in, in the, all these situations, there's lots of bribery. Charles V borrowed massive amounts of money from the famous Fugger family, and uh, a banking family in Germany. And uh, the grease the pockets of these, these archbishops and others. <coughs> grease the palms, I think it is, isn't it? At any rate, this, again, this, this set of circumstances had, had the result of, from the papacy, instead of focusing too much on Luther, they were more concerned about courting Luther's prince. Uh, this whole thing may have saved Luther's life. the wise did. I think one of the reasons they call him wise is because he was, he was, he was clearly aware that if Luther kept on his, his, his trouble, if he can, his kinds of trouble, if he continued later, he was going to bring down the wrath of the Pope. So, Frederick the Wise realized that he Frederick the Wise in his kinds of to win and become the next Holy Roman Emperor. He'd have as much money as Francis I and certainly not as much money as Charles V. And so, what Frederick the Wise did is he played footsies with Charles V. He made a deal. And he said that he would throw his support, Frederick would throw his support toward Charles V. If, in return, Charles V would promise that if Luther ever got into trouble and was brought to trial, that the trial would take place on German soil and not be taken to Rome, where Luther would have had no support whatsoever. So, again, Frederick the Wise is, is very wise. He realizes that Luther is, is, is going to be in trouble if he continues making these kinds of statements. And he already knew that Luther was a very bold chap at this point. So, he makes a deal. He throws his support toward Charles V in return for the promise that if there is a trial for Luther, it take place on German soil. You know, he may have, like, like a lot of people, resented papal influence in his kingdom. I mean, we already know that he didn't like Tetzel and he didn't like the selling of indulgences in his area of Saxony because it, it created inflation. It took out gold and, and created a problem in his economy. <laughs> if he's like a lot of, of people in Germany, they just resent the intrusion and the domination of Rome all the way to Germany. So he may have had some of those kinds of feelings and saw in Luther as someone who, who represented those kinds of concerns and could help lessen that dominion of Rome. Whether or not he bought into the theology, it's hard to say. There may be another factor. I mean, it's, 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 I mean, Luther was his subject, and there was a social contract between a subject and his prince. Obviously, some princes took that more seriously than others. 
But it may very well be that Frederick the Wise took that, that, that responsibility that he is to protect his subjects uh, as much as he possibly can. And there's some indication that that was in fact the case. He, Luther was his subject, and he didn't want somebody coming in here and dealing and, and killing or, or you know, killing his, his, his subject. So I think there are probably a combination of factors. We don't know for sure what it was about Frederick who, who went to great lengths, and, and we're, we haven't even seen how, how great the lengths are at this point. Uh, but it's very serious, his commitment to Luther. Is there another question? Okay. After all the bribes and all the footsies and bargains that were cut, Charles V became elected Holy Roman Emperor in 1519. Still a very young man, about uh, about 20 or so, when he came to become... Nine, I think, in fact, I think he was in his teens, late teens, when he became Holy Roman Emperor. And I've already mentioned to you that, that uh, very early on, this very young emperor is distracted by other kinds of concerns, namely the Turks and his old buddy Frederick I. Now, Francis I is dogging his heels and starting wars right and left. Well, that's 1519. And we're starting to see that this moral concern of Luther in 1517 with regard to the indulgences controversy now has, has expanded gradually and now is moving into doctrinal kinds of questions about the authority of the Pope. In 1519 at Leipzig, he is sort of pushed by it to be more vocal and more precise <coughs> about his concerns. And in 1520, Luther lets loose. I call it the Roaring Twenties. 1520 is a clear point of departure for Luther. This is when he tries to, in many ways, he cuts the umbilical cord. Luther wrote three uh, books in 1520, three major works. They were The Address to the Christian Nobility, Address to the Christian Nobility. The most controversial. The second work was the Babylonian Captivity. Are they up there? Yeah. Address to the Christian Nobility of the German Nation. The Babylonian Captivity. And the Freedom of the Christian Man. The Freedom of the Christian Man. First, his address to the Christian nobility of the German nation. In this work, Luther argues that the church cannot reform itself. And therefore, the task of reforming the church ought to go to the princes, the secular leaders. They must reform the church. They must take the responsibility for bringing about theological and moral change. And this is a call to action on the part of the German nobility. Uh, this is extraordinary. Reform is something that the church thinks it's only it, it's, it's, it's prerogative to do. 
not a prince. I mean, there's this separation of church and state that is characteristic of the Middle Ages. And Luther is flying in the face of traditional categories. He's saying the secular prince needs to take responsibility for reforming the church because the church can't do it. It's too bogged down. Also in this book, he pulls down what he calls the three walls of Jericho. The three walls of Jericho. The three walls are, in this writing, this first writing, he rejects the exclusion of laity from participation in the church. In other words, he thinks there ought to be more lay participation in the church. Secondly, he rejects the Roman claim that they are the only one who can legitimately interpret the Scriptures. He rejects the church's claim that it alone can rightly interpret the Scriptures, but that the individual can also rightly interpret the Scripture. This is very, very dramatic. And third, he rejects the claim of the church as having the exclusive right to call a church council. He rejects the church's claim to have the exclusive right of calling a church council, particularly the Pope. And then the kicker in all of this is Luther, for the first time, articulates what he calls the priesthood of all believers. For him, there should be no uh, fundamental distinction between clergy and laity. The difference between clergy and laity is in terms of office and function, not in terms of their estate or their... uh, in the Middle Ages, you know that if you were a clergyman, you were much closer to God, or at least that's the way it was perceived. If you really wanted to go to heaven, then you became a priest because that meant you were in a higher estate, closer to God, this hierarchy that the church had established. Luther says no to all of that. Clergy and laity are not fundamentally different, only in terms of office and function. That the priest, therefore, is not absolutely required and again, this, this, this goes flying in the face of the essence of the sacramental system of the church to affirm the priesthood of all believers. In the same book, he chastises uh, the clergy and the pope for their greed. He also chastises the clergy, the popes, cardinals for their greed. Again, you get this sense that as a German, he represents that broad-based resentment of Germans against Rome. Rome is a foreign uh, entity, and it's 
bothering us over here in Germany. They're, they're, they're sucking the lifeblood out of us financially and morally. So we may see here almost a, a nationalistic flavor to what he's saying. Is this written in a language that all the people can read? Yes, yes. It's addressed to the Christian nobility, so it's addressed, I think it's written in German. Uh, a number of things he says. <laughs> I, I mean, let's just, you might want to note some of these. He also says, in the same book now, and, you, and again, you're going to see these are, these are much more radical kinds of things he's saying. First, he advocates the abolition of clerical celibacy. That is a biggie. Same book. He's saying masses for the dead should be abolished. Deny, rejects clerical celibacy or says it should not be uh, required. He says masses for the dead should be abolished. That monks should be free to leave monasteries. Wow. That fasts should be optional. And that begging should be forbidden uh, by monks. You may or may not know this, but uh, the mendicant, so-called mendicant orders, the Franciscans and the Dominicans and the Augustinian hermits, for that matter, were mendicant orders. And they survived by begging, by asking people for money. Because... That, that they were set up to take a vow of uh, poverty. And so Luther resented this, this begging uh, lifestyle of the mendicant orders. Would you just the mendicant orders again? The mendicant orders were the Franciscans, Dominicans are the two main ones, and then also the Augustinian hermits. And then he says... The church needs to admit that it made a terrible mistake in executing Jan Hus. The church should admit that it made a mistake in the martyrdom of Jan Hus. Luther argues that heretics should be overcome with persuasion, not fire. I think there is a point of inconsistency, a little inconsistency here with Luther later on uh, because he does, uh, at least at one point, uh, support the death penalty for uh, heretics. He also talks about the reformation of universities and that Aristotle should be thrown out. Aristotle... He describes as a dead, blind, accursed, proud, knavish, heathen teacher. In other words, Luther didn't like Aristotle. <laughs> he also has a, a shot to take at the German people. He says they drink too much. They're gluttons. I mean, while you're at it, while you're criticizing everything in the world, you might as well get the German people too. In other words, I think he's saying you think too much about your belly and not enough about piety. So he's by talking about gluttony, I think what he's really getting at here is there's a lack of piety 
that's pervasive among the Germans. One of the str- just quickly, one of the strange ironies of Luther and the and the Lutheran movement is that Luther takes on as his first lieutenant is a man named Philip Melanchthon, and Philip. Uh, although for the first few years after he came to the University of Wittenberg and became the best exponent of Lutheranism, uh, was uh, he is the guy who, in the later years of Luther's ministry, brought Aristotle back to the universities. And Melanchthon is a whole interesting story. I don't have time to go into it. But this man who, whom Luther said was the greatest theologian in the world who best articulated his own vision for Reformation was a man whose own theology as it developed, particularly after Luther died, went in a very different direction. Very humanistic. Uh, that's, that's a whole very interesting story. Melanchthon. M-E-L-A-N-C-H-T-H O-N. Philip Melanchthon. But that is a very interesting story to, to compare and contrast Melanchthon and Luther. But there was a departure, clearly. We look first at the address to the Christian nobility of the German nation, and then to the very um, aggressive work of his called the Babylonian Captivity. In the earlier work, his final remarks, or should I say taunts, went like this. Writing now in the first book. I have another song still to sing concerning Rome. If they wish to hear it, I will sing it to them and sing with all my might. Do you understand, my friend Rome, what I mean? The other song was his book, The Babylonian Captivity. Uh, This was written in Latin. Uh, Meant that it was a scholarly, academic work. Very polemical. Far-reaching consequences. Luther attacks head-on the sacramental system of the church. He goes right for the jugular. According to Luther the sacramental system represents a captivity. And Rome is the modern-day Babylon. Fighting words from this German monk. Luther discusses the Lord's Supper and he sees that there are three errors in the late medieval Roman Catholic view of the Lord's Supper. First, the withdrawal of the cup from the laity. Some of you know about this, some of you don't. Uh, What happened is that in about the 12th century, it was decided... uh, that the cup, the wine, should be withdrawn from the laity. And as a result, throughout the Middle Ages, when a person came to partake 
elements. He received only the bread and not the wine. That was reserved only for the priest who finished it off usually. Well, it goes back uh, 12th century, late 11th, early 12th century. And the thinking was that uh, one received the full Christ in both elements individually and so that it wasn't really necessary to give the wine as well. And after all, uh, laymen might spill the real blood of Jesus. And that's a terrible thing. And so with that kind of thinking, of taking a risk at spilling the, the, the true blood of Jesus, and the fact that the full Christ could be communicated to people through the bread alone, led uh, Roman Catholic theologians in the late 11th, early 12th century to withdraw the cup. Uh, Luther felt this was just absolutely crazy. And he felt that the laity certainly had a right to partake of the cup as well as the bread. He writes, I conclude that to deny reception in both kinds, that is, the bread and the wine, is an act of impiety and tyranny and not in the power of the Pope or any council. The sacrament does not belong to the priests, but to all. This is what you call a head-on collision with the church. Uh, You you see a sense of the boldness of this man. Uh, He's not attacking at the periphery. He's going to the heart of the matter. So he attacks this free 400-year-old 300-year-old principle. Uh, Secondly, he overtly rejects the doctrine of transubstantiation. Now, Luther, as you know, affirmed the real presence of Christ, but he did reject transubstantiation. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu